Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Hello, today's Kinney interview is with Yi Wei, who is the Global Wash Director at an organization called IDE. In this interview, Yi speaks about her experience with implementing market-based approaches to wash in Cambodia specifically, but also in other parts of the Indo-Pacific region. And she shares how IDE is taking a human-centered approach to uh, wash and what makes that different from other approaches to wash. Furthermore, we talk a lot about subsidies and we talk about incentives. Incentives for people who are trying to get work done in the field, incentives for communities, and incentives for people who are seeking funding to get this work done. So it's a very far-reaching conversation, and with that, I hope you enjoy my Kinney interview with Yi Wei. I'm Karen Delfo. And here you have it. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and to share um, um, all the information that you would like to about what IDE is doing in the innovative space around market-based approaches and WASH. Would you mind to just share a little bit about um, your past experience and, and the many places that you've worked and some of the um, incredible things that you've done over the last, you know, I guess, 10 years or so? So uh, my name is Yi Wei, and I'm the Global WASH Director at IDE, for those at IDE, for those who are unfamiliar with WASH, WASH stands for Water Sanitation and Hygiene, and I, I've been with IDE for almost eight years now. I started with IDE, uh, honestly, straight out of college as a volunteer, and uh, wasn't planning on going into international development. But you know, when the universe hands you something exciting, um, you step through the door. So when I landed in Cambodia with IDE about eight years ago. Um, we were just starting to test out this idea of a market-based approach to improving wash. Um, the situation when we first entered the space was um, quite depressing, honestly. I think there was a lot of effort going into improving clean drinking water and sanitation, but um, there wasn't a ton of traction in terms of getting scaled impact. Um, IDE's focus is on rural households. And we really try to leverage the mechanism of the market, the private sector, the power of entrepreneurship to deliver much needed goods and services. And we've been doing um, this market-based approach in the ag space for almost uh, 35 years now, um, but few people were actually trying out this market-based approach in WASH when we first entered it. And so when I landed in Cambodia, we were trying to see, one, are households interested in purchasing uh, latrines? And water filters, and um, would be would businesses be willing to sell them um, long term? Could we make a sustainable solution out of this? And lo and behold, fast forward eight years later, um, globally we sold over a million toilets and water filters uh, across our six country programs. So we were able to demonstrate that the private sector could be an effective mechanism of uh, distributing these much needed. 
products and services and have come up with a, a process for how to do this and replicate this in other country programs. This is an incredible success that you're speaking about and, and really understanding the inception of how it's moved from one sector within water to the other would be really interesting. Yeah, well, I am not exactly sure of the actual um, transferring between the ag and wash space. I think, I mean, internally, it was very uh, opportunistic. Our founder, Paul Pollack, was not um, an agronomist or economist by trade. He was a psychologist. And he first encountered the international development space when he was invited by a friend um, to visit the Somalian refugee situation and he identified that you know if these refugees had access to transport transport they could actually um, get the local economy going so to speak and it was that spark that gave him you know the insight that you know why are poor people poor because they don't have money and why don't they have money is because they don't have access to economic means of production um, that would generate more income. And so he applied this lens to the ag space, focusing on smallholder farmers because they were and are still are the vast majority of the world's poor, and focused on developing transformative technologies that could be scaled up through the market. So if you give farmers access to irrigation technologies, um, access to better inputs, they will be able to have better yields, increasing their income. And um, in terms of how we adopted it on the wash side, it was just a, I mean, a, a, some of our internal leaders saw that there was a clear need for clean drinking water, sanitation, and the traditional approach at the time was just uh, hardware subsidies. You know, if people don't have a toilet, give them a free toilet. Um, and that evolved eventually into community mobilization approaches where, um, you know, subsidies became more um, taboo and you know, the international development community tried to focus on um, participatory empowerment and getting people to adopt their own solutions. And uh, to a certain extent, that motivated some action, but there still was a need for a durable, affordable, aspirational product for people to use. Um, and so the market uh, really was lacking in this, um, this ecosystem in, uh, in terms of a solution, and IDE saw an opportunity to apply its market-based experience to the wash space. And I'm really curious also, what did you study as an undergrad? <laughs> Great question. So when I first entered college, I actually thought I was going to go into music professionally. Um, uh, and then I was part of a liberal arts program and a music performance program and orchestral percussion. Um, my undergrad liberal arts education degree is called social studies. Um, uh, it, Sounds simple, but it was quite a challenging field of interdisciplinary fields, um, combining a lot of political economy, sociology, uh, statistics, history, continental philosophy. And so having that rich multidisciplinary background has really helped me um, see the complexity and nuance and historical legacy of some of these problems we're trying to solve today. And you say that the, the door to international development just sort of opened and you decided to walk through it. Yeah, on the one hand, it was a bit random. On the other hand, you know, in retrospect, all the dots do connect. <laughs> um, my undergraduate thesis was on comparing uh, social entrepreneurship with community organizing as uh -huh. uh, different modes of change. And so I knew I was interested in looking at the intersection of the political forum versus the market 
uh, place. And, um, you know, I looked at different social enterprises when no one was talking about social entrepreneurship. I had one uh, source for my literature for these uh, for my thesis uh, just because no one was talking about it. And now, you know, social entrepreneurship, social enterprises, impact investing is all the rage. Um, so there were definitely seeds of my interest that led me to um, IDE. But like many great things in life, it was, um, you know, chance meeting the prepared at the right moment. So I met um, a man named Jeff Chapin, who at that time was with IDO. Uh, IDO is one of the world's most renowned design companies. And he was on sabbatical in Cambodia. And he ended up designing the easy latrine, the toilet that we are selling in Cambodia. And he was out of um, the IDO Boston office. And I met him at an um, after school event and was looking for uh, an interesting project after I graduated. So he connected me with IDE. So it was all just very happenstance. Um, and I ended up working under uh, some amazing leaders who are not international development experts themselves. They come from a marketing background, private sector background. And, um, you know, I, I actually think if you want to do a market based approach, the functional skill sets that you need have to do with business and the market. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we have a lot of folks who come from a public health background or um, a more traditional international development background who are interested in uh, the type of approach we're doing. But ultimately, the day to day problems you're trying to solve are business problems or economics problems. So um, my personal belief is that it's a lot easier to learn the technical sanitation or water aspects um, in our uh, field than to learn how to think like a business. It's really exciting to see the culmination of a lot of different, just great ways of thinking in the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we're really proud of the fact that um, we really take a user-centered approach. Um, you know, Paul Pollock, our founder, 35 years ago was saying, you know, to really understand a farmer's problems, you need to talk to at least 100 farmers a year. And we really try to apply that ethos to everything we do. You really don't know if it'll work until you talk to someone and you don't know what they want or need until you talk to them. It seems obvious, but um, for some reason it is often forgotten. And that transition from subsidy to market in the communities, how, how did that work with WASH? Was that, um, was that easy? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, before I get into that very specific uh, scenario, I do want to just clarify that, you know, we're not against all subsidy. Um, everything IDE does for the most part is subsidized in the fact that, you know, we get grant funding from private and public donors. And it's not that subsidy is good or bad, but it's about how do you optimize the efficiency of um, scarce resources, public funding to get the biggest bang for your buck. And what we've always said is that um, get those who are willing and able to pay to pay, get those who are less um, able but willing to pay um, to get financing mechanisms. Um, and then those who truly are unable to pay, that's when you can directly subsidize the market price of the product or service. So I just want to clarify that, you know, when you talk about subsidy, we can mean, you know, the very explicit, discrete hardware subsidy of a free toilet. But from an economics perspective, anything that is not fully emerging from the market is considered subsidized. So, and 
our role is really to take something that is non-commercializable, non-investable into something that is commercializable, crowding in private sector actors to invest in this space. Um, Thank you for that clarification. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a very it's a very sticky political sort of space, the whole subsidy space. But um, yeah, I think that looking at it in terms of those three tiers of the community really helps as well, making sure that those subsidies are targeted towards the people who need it most. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I bring it up just because um, it's quite funny now. There's a quote that I remember very vividly from um, a conference uh, two, three years ago, and someone said, you know, it's much more acceptable to say shit than subsidy in the wash space now. And, um, you know, IDE is a market-based organization, and we are the first to say we do subsidies. Just let's do it effectively. Um, and, you know, we're now moving into mature market spaces where um, we're really running into the poorest of the poor and they definitely need subsidy, direct subsidy. Um, so the sequencing matters, the fine print matters. It's not a yes or no. It's how do we do this in a nuanced way that's responsive to the specific context at hand. Um, but to your, I do want to address your other question of how do you transition from an environment where customers, potential customers, users are used to direct subsidies, um, handouts when you're really trying to get them to buy and invest. Um, yeah, I mean, that was one of our biggest challenges when we first started. It wasn't um, the, I mean, the actual work was certainly difficult, but one of the biggest obstacles we faced were subsidy programs. Um, you know, even if you're trying to sell to a country of 14, 15 million people, if you just have one subsidy program um, that has given away, uh, you know, 10,000, 100,000 free goodies, that distorts the market. Um, people do not know that you don't have enough to give to everyone. They just have an expectation that, oh, their neighbor got one for free. Why shouldn't they? And they hold out on buying. Um, and that, that created a ton of challenges to get the market moving. You know, if people don't buy, businesses won't invest, and the whole thing just gets stuck. Uh, so... We worked really hard to overcome that in a couple of ways. Um, first, we wanted to make sure the product offering that we were um, providing to the customer was unique and different. Um, you know, that included everything uh, from making sure that the product actually looked different from the subsidy option, that it was more aspirational, that it was something that people would be willing to put money down on and invest in. Um, to make sure to position it as an uh, aspirational product that, um, you know, separated it from uh, the free things that poor people got. Um, so product differentiation was uh, an important part of our strategy uh, on the marketing side of things. But it was also important for us to work with businesses to understand that, hey, you could take this contract for 100 toilets right now from this NGO, or you can invest in developing the market for you know, 100,000 people in your village. Uh, so, you know, it's hard when you're talking to businesses who need the cash now and where it's a given contract uh, versus the risk of taking on investing in a potential market. And then on the third level, uh, we worked with other NGOs and government players to say, look, um, if you want a sustainable solution that's scalable, you need to work through a mechanism that's not limited by X number of toilets you can buy. Um, you know, even if you had a hundred million dollars, you couldn't buy everyone in the world a toilet. Uh, so how do we develop, um, a self-perpetuating mechanism such as the market that can, uh, promulgate 
products that scale sustainably. And so it was a lot of just back and forth conversations, learning together and producing evidence to show that this could work another way um, and changing minds one conference at a time. And this is actually an excellent segue into incentives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think it'd be great if you want to jump in and just start speaking about uh, community incentives and WASH. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, we believe that people, markets, organizations are driven by incentives. And incentives don't have to be tangible or financial in nature. Um, it could be very intangible, but very powerful. Um, so anything that affects your reason for doing something is an incentive or disincentive. And um, we recognize that human behavior is very much driven by incentives. Um, and that means everyone from our end user, our customer, um, to our staff, to our organization as a whole, and to our um, colleagues in the field. So it, it, it's part and parcel of, of our user-centered approach for understanding what are the drivers, barriers, accelerators of um, behaviors. And so um, one very tangible example of how we have applied incentives is in um, scaling up our market-based approach you know, with our teams and in relationship with our partners. Um, you know, with a market-based approach, ultimately you want someone to buy something. And if you want someone to buy something, someone has to sell it, right? And sales um, is notoriously difficult. And um, when you're trying to sell something that is not necessarily the top of people's list um, and uh, to, you know, a relatively poor population, it's a really difficult job. So how do you keep um, salespeople motivated? Um, and so, you know, we borrowed from the private sector um, sales industry where any sales organization uses uh, incentives and often they're financial. And that's a bit anathema to the way NGOs typically do their work, you know, to financially incentivize your staff or your partners to do a certain behavior is not really accepted. Or at least it wasn't when we first started this um, about six years ago. So we developed an incentive system to motivate all the various tiers of our own staff and down to the, um, the private sector actors that we worked with. Um, you know, with the businesses that we worked with, their incentive was profit. The more they sold, the more profit they earned. For the sales agents on the ground, who at that time were independent sales agents, their incentive was commission. The more they sold, the more commission they earned. And for our own staff who are managing um, the businesses and the sales agents, um, you know, if they were able to facilitate more sales, they got more incentives. Um, and it means as simple as that. And the power of incentives lies in the fact that um, it's a it can be a very nuanced tool for you to elicit certain desired behaviors. So, you know, you don't always just. Uh, incentivize the end result. Of course, we want them to facilitate more sales, but what leads to more sales? If you have more sales agents on your team, so you can incentivize the number of sales agents you're able to recruit and train and retain. Um, so it's just a very powerful tool that you can uh, modify in a timely way um, based on the results you're getting. 
And, uh, you know, for an incentive program to be effective, you need to have timely data of what we're doing. And so we built a robust real-time data system that allowed us to monitor um, and manage performance. So at the staff level, that's what we developed. And we also worked with a really um, forward-thinking partner in the Gates Foundation who incentivized us to reach um, stretch targets. So as part of the um, grant agreement, we had you know um, acceptable targets, and we also had stretch targets that if we reached those stretch targets, we were able to access the pool of unrestricted funding. And if anyone has you know any experience working with NGOs, unrestricted funding is, is amazing. It's like the gold mine. <laughs> and so um, the power of incentives is such that you can set a clear goal and reward for that reaching that goal, but you don't necessarily have to dictate all the activities. You know, the Gates Foundation didn't say to us, oh, you have to do X, Y, Z activities to accomplish those goals. Here's the goal. Here's your incentive. Figure it out. And it um, creates a space for innovation and creativity um, that's really focused on top line results everyone cares about and not creating a ton of transactions that are not necessarily productive. Are you seeing this approach happening more and more with with NGOs or really is this just within the market-based approach uh, that NGOs are taking? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I to be honest, I haven't seen it applied a ton elsewhere. Actually, I can't think of another example. <laughs> Even in market-based organizations um, who, are, who are NGOs. I mean, if you're a sales organization, obviously you're already doing it on, uh, taking it on, or if you're a social enterprise, um, doing sales, you're probably incorporating some um, aspects of incentives. Um, but you may, I mean, even for an NGO um, who's mission focused, I, I'm sure all NGOs would uh, say that they're mission focused. Uh, incentives are a really powerful way to keep yourselves accountable. You know, either it happened or it didn't happen, and you'll get rewarded if you get um, a result that's uh, provable. Um, so, in terms of supporting the mission, I actually think that um, it really improves the accountability to results. Oftentimes, you know, obviously we work in a very complex environment and it's really difficult to make change. And there are always a lot of extenuating circumstances that can explain why something didn't happen. But at the end of the day, if we care about results and achieving that mission, we should hold ourselves accountable to being rewarded for achieving those results. Um, and incentives don't have to be financial. Fin financial incentives are just the simplest, most direct way to incentivize behavior. Um, and you don't always want to incentivize um, certain behavior. Like we don't incentivize our M&E team based on number of sales. You know, that would just be conflict of interest. We incentivize our M&E team based on the quality of data. Um, and so, again, you know, that's why incentives are so powerful. You can incentivize whatever behavior you're trying to encourage and it doesn't have to be financial. It could be career promotions. It could be exposure to conferences, you know, for some of your local staff. It could be, um, yeah, whatever is motivating for the person or organization you're trying to incentivize. And if money makes it complicated, um, think creatively about other currencies that could be used. Um, and I think, you know, one of the challenges of implementing incentives, if they're financial, is finding partners who are comfortable and able to uh, make that possible. You know, like not all donors are able to approve financial incentives because 
it might not be an eligible cost. So make sure that it is actually feasible with your partner. We've worked with partners before to make sure it is feasible, but it can be a long journey to get there. So the next thing I think would be great to learn a little bit more from you about is scalability, um, mm -hmm. because IDE has been tremendously successful in scaling up some of the technologies and the approaches that it's taken in the countries it's been working. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about scalability and maybe some stories about scaling up some of these technologies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, I guess I would pull back a bit and say that we're not just trying to scale technologies. Ultimately, we're trying to scale the market-based approach, right? And um, in most of our country programs, they all have different products. Uh, and again, that goes back to the importance of designing to context, designing to the specific needs, wants, desires of your user in that context and what's possible within that context. So, you know, the initial product that we designed in Cambodia, which is a poor flush ceramic um, offset pit latrine that works in Cambodia because that's what people want and that's what's possible within the local supply chain. But it's not possible in rural Ethiopia where water is scarce, right? So make sure you, one, do the homework of... Um, doing that deep dive, that human-centered research to understand what is desired and feasible um, and viable, financially viable within this context. Um, that's the very first step. Um, and then in terms of operationalizing that design, it's very iterative. You know, you, you won't have the perfect solution from the get-go at any point in time, anywhere. And so it's about having um, a feedback loop that is timely, that is accurate, that gives you the information you need to iterate and improve upon your solution. Um, and I would say the third part is, at least for IDE, that's very important, um, is having that boots on the ground, day-to-day -day, um, grind. <laughs> it's not sexy and it doesn't sound like, oh, it's an easy catalytic copy and paste um, approach, but it isn't easy and it does take that day-to-day -day grind on the ground interacting with users, interacting with private sector actors to be able to iterate in a timely, appropriate way. Um, so our model is very much focused on boots on the ground. We work with uh, local government, local private sector actors. And um, without that, it's kind of hard to know what's going on. Uh, so yeah, those three things, design to context, um, making sure that you have you know, a feedback loop that's giving you the right information to iterate and having that on the ground presence to iterate. The other thing I was hoping you could share a bit more about is the kind of innovative funding models and the ways of thinking about accessing funding and bringing together partners for funding that you've been so successful in, in doing. Yeah, I think we learned a lot by looking back on our experiences um, globally in partnerships that have really worked well in partnerships that have uh, that could have gone better, and some of the um, common characteristics of very effective partnerships have been, um, you know, everyone around the table shares the same long-term vision, um, and you know we have a harmonized program that is not projectized, um, where you know there's a separate reporting structure for this donor, a separate reporting structure for that donor, different KPIs for this donor, different KPIs for that donor. And in that case, you just have a ton of transactional costs managing some of the nitty gritty that ultimately um, should feed up to the headline KPI, but 
distract you from the big goal. And so it's very important to articulate a vision that people can buy in from from the very beginning and know your partners really well. You know, like your users, your partners have different needs and desires and constraints given their own organizations, what they're able to fund, what they're not able to fund. But have that upfront conversation uh, and identify who can contribute what type of resource. It could be human, financial, technical, and where along the process they want to join. Um, and so we've started to look towards, you know, the venture capital space for inspiration and how they raise money over a period of time as a business scales. And they really try to align different investors with different risk reward profiles. You know, so super early stage investors hope to get in on the ground floor early on and, you know, have a huge return. But they're obviously taking a huge risk also because it hasn't been proven yet. Um, and later stage investors, you know, let's say you have IPO'd um, and, you know, it's a proven business. And so if you buy a stock, you own a very small portion of the business. So your reward is less because your risk is less. And so that risk reward paradigm is something that I think we should be much more cognizant of um, using as a lens when we approach different partners. What comfort level do they have with different risk profiles? Do they want to be early stage, are they willing to take on that risk and take a chance on you? Or are you looking at a bilateral donor who really wants to invest in something that is proven but can provide um, large-scale funding? So knowing different stages of your program, what type of risk appetite are you comfortable with and delivering on, and finding partners along the way who can meet those criteria. Um, ideally, you have them all in the same room at the very beginning and you're positioning yourselves to be ready for the next stage investor or donor uh, and they can tell you what they need for you to be investment ready. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's the um, lack of the, the fragmented nature of funding in the development space that leads to a lot of um, stop and start um, tendencies of projects. And I say projects because oftentimes People see them as projects and not necessarily seamless programs that are long-lasting. Well, you're talking about a real paradigm shift in the way that NGOs approach funding. Uh, it's a very exciting shift and it's a necessary shift because the world is changing and I think that's the way that NGOs need to go. Yeah, I guess I do want to be clear. When I say investment, I don't necessarily mean um, the strict definition of investment where they will get their money back uh, and with a return. Um, you know, I say investment because even donors who give us grants, it's an investment in a long-term, long-standing program, um, as opposed to a short-term grant for a project that'll end in three years. And so, um, you know, in that grant situation, it's an investment with a negative 100% financial return, um, but with a lot of social return, and especially for donors who want to play a catalytic role in the very beginning, they like to know that their early stage investment in the seed funding in the form of a grant that they don't expect to get paid back financially has led to the development of a sustainable program. Which also reflects this, uh, the paradigm of impact investing and looking mm -hmm. at other returns that are not just financial. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share or speak about? Yeah, I think one thing I do want to clarify from um, just this last topic about impact investing and um, the shifting paradigm is, um, I guess I'm not trying to say that everyone should start a social enterprise and try to be 100% cost recovery. 
by definition, the populations we're serving are more marginalized and vulnerable and costly to serve. And it may not be possible to get 100% cost recovery. It's really thinking about the problem differently in terms of how do you uh, approach your partners, the tenor of the relationship, um, whether you're in it for the long game, uh, are you de developing something sustainable, and how do you think about returns on investment in a way that hold all parties accountable. If somebody has listened to our interview and is really excited about maybe learning more or getting involved in the space or finding an internship like uh, the one that you started off with, how would you guide them and what resources would you provide and what advice would you like to share? Uh, the first place I would start is with our website, ideeglobal.org. Um, that's where we host all of our most recent announcements about any job openings. Um, and the latest updates about our programs. Um, we also are present on social media. Just search for IDE on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And um, if there are specific teams that you're interested in working with, there are team emails listed on our website that you can reach out to. Um, I would say for those who are early stage in their career, if you want to be involved in a market-based organization, um, it's super helpful to have market skills. <laughs> So if you can write a business plan, if you can read um, a financial model, if you can understand um, some economic analysis, that is particularly helpful. Um, and it is also very important for us that you come with some field experience, um, the ability to work with people of all different cultures, um, be comfortable with the dusty, hot <laughs> context of the field, because uh, that's where all the exciting work happens. And it seems like also from what you're saying, that's where the, the critical work happens and where the iteration takes place and where the success is built is being mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in country Definitely. and yeah, doing that, hitting the ground, pounding mm -hmm. the pavement, speaking Definitely. with over 100 farmers about everything. Mm -hmm. yep. Excellent. Great. Well, you thank you so much for your time this morning. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing what new developments are happening with IDE. Great. Thank you so much for having us. All right. Kini is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Kini connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at kini.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more. <laughs>